Okay, everybody, I think uh, it's about that time to get into Exodus. If y'all could, who needs Bibles? Anybody need a Bible? We've got some over here on the cart. I'm sure that somebody will be willing to get it for you. That way you don't got to get up. Um, Well, we find ourselves in Exodus this morning. I mean this evening. (laughs) That's a good start, right, y'all? That's a good start. Uh, Here we go. Um, so So we've done Genesis, but we skipped Exodus, as well as the other books of the Bible, and we went to Revelation. So we've done Genesis and Revelation. We went to the Gospel of Matthew. Then we went to the book of Psalms, and that kind of prepared the way. Uh, for a march, as it were, through the rest of the books. And we'll go in chronological order now. Uh, the, the reason why we hit those was that they'll be very helpful immediately. Not to say that the rest of Scripture isn't just as helpful. Uh, however, those big books, the ones that I just mentioned, can, can give us a, a framework or a paradigm, as it were, uh, for us to move through uh, chronologically the rest. And so now we find ourselves in the second book, of the Bible, the book of Exodus. Now, the book of Exodus, uh, and, and you'll see this in, the, in the, the, the handout. Does everyone have a handout? Hearing silence means that I will take a, that for a yes. In your handout, you'll see some context and some connection. I won't go through all of that, but it's good to know that Moses is attributed with writing this book as well as, as Genesis and as well as Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, So this is the second installment of Moses' five-volume set that we find in Scripture. Uh, They are definitely connected. They're connected historically. They're connected theologically. They're connected uh, uh, morally and ethically. You you see this, uh, the penmanship of Moses flow through like a stream, all of these books, and they're really to be taken together. That's why uh, the Hebrews call it the law, the Torah, the first five books, and then uh, their Greek counterparts, the Pentateuch, uh, that is the five volumes, uh, the Pentateuch. And so now we come to the second one, Exodus. Uh, Exodus, is this a little loud? It feels a little loud. Uh, can we, can somebody help me with my mic volume? Look at Rod, ever the deacon. Yeah. How's that? It, hello, everybody. How does this sound? Good. Still loud. I haven't even started yelling yet. Uh, <laughs> Got to keep y'all awake somehow. Uh, <laughs> okay, so we, we come to Exodus, but, but we need to remember the purpose. Uh, we need to remember the purpose of this study, right? Uh, 66 books of the Bible, a brief survey. We're not breaking them into parts, right? We did the whole thing of Psalms. We did all of Matthew. We did all of Revelation, And so that necessarily means that we can't cover everything. And so the goal or the purpose of this survey is to help us dive into these texts, to be able to get into the books of the Bible in a way that's meaningful and in a way that would give us a framework to to read them and to read them more knowledgeably with important themes in mind. And so with the book of Exodus, you know, this book, carries with it many wonderful stories that everyone typically in the Christian church remembers. The burning bush, the ten plagues, the ten commandments, the giving of the ten commandments, a fire by night, a cloud by day, the parting of the Red Sea, 
and it goes on, manna from heaven, right? A lot of these stories, uh, we're like, oh yeah, that's in Exodus. Yeah, we kind of recall it. Uh, there are a, a ton of stories that, that we recall like that from the book of Exodus. And I think there's a reason for it because God manifests himself. Uh, they're called theophanies, if you want to use the big word. But, but God kind of materially manifests himself so many times in the book of Exodus that it leads to these wonderful stories, these very kind of uh, tangible, you know, imaginative things that we can kind of grasp onto. And it's, it's a wonderful book of the Bible. But what are some things that we need to know for us to dive into it with our families or for us to dive into it personally or if we were to go into a Bible study or something like that to have at least a framework. Well, we need context first. Uh, where have we been in the story so far? You know, we were in Genesis, but then we went to Revelation, so we kind of lost our continuity a little bit. Uh, so you don't have to flip here, but in Genesis 15, uh, this is verses 13 through 14, we see God uh, promising Abraham something. Uh, he's promising him land, uh, the country. Uh, this is Genesis 15, 13 through 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Likewise, Genesis chapter 50, which is the very last chapter of Genesis, uh, in verses 24 and 25, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, that is the land of Egypt, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, if we were to remove the, uh, the, the break in our Bibles from Genesis to Exodus and to keep on reading in Exodus chapter 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. And then we go through the names, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. So you see the connection. We're, we're, we're continuing the story. Moses is writing a, a, a continued story. This isn't a, a break. Uh, it's just a break in, in the way we printed it. This happens often in Scripture. And so uh, Moses was, I mean, Joseph was already there. Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So at the end of Genesis, Joseph had saved the day, the hero. And because he was the hero, all of his family got to be with him. And because he was the hero, everyone honored him. And because he was the hero, Israel was not subjected to any type of suffering or slavery. Well, they forgot about him. As uh, you know, as often of history, you forget. And when you forget, well, sometimes bad things ensue. And so Israel was subjugated, and they're slaves now in Egypt. And that's the setting of the story. The nation of Israel, God's people, have been here for 400 years, and they're slaves. Not only are they slaves, well, they're starting to not be treated well. In fact, they're getting so strong that the Pharaoh of the time wants to kill all their male children. 
He wants to commit infanticide, uh, the killing of infants, so that Israel doesn't get stronger because they are a strong people, blessed by God. The context shows God's people in slavery, suffering, no power, turmoil. Now, with this context, perhaps before we dive into Exodus proper, it may be wise for us to pray for the blessing from him. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that uh, we can look into your word revealed to us and that we can see truths, but we don't have to look at it only verse by verse or even chapter by chapter. We can look at it book by book and we can see an overarching uh, uh, stream of salvation, uh, uh, your hand tracing along the history of mankind, uh, and we can see Jesus uh, written in the stars on, uh, on every day. Uh, that we see recorded here in scripture and so we thank you for that and help us to see Jesus help us to see the good news of Jesus and how it can affect us now as we seek to study your word we pray in Jesus name amen so now we have the we have the context how Israel got there that is the nation of Israel Uh, they're in slavery and and things begin to happen Uh, Moses comes on the scene everybody knows Moses right well at least his name maybe Uh, Moses the prophet the one who can't speak very well, so his brother Aaron does a lot of the speaking for him. A humble man, meek before the eyes of the Lord. Well, the first thing that we need to know uh, as we look at Exodus in general is that God reveals his personal name here. It's been used before, but God's personal name is revealed in the pages of Exodus. This is huge, monumental for the people of God. It's in Exodus chapter 3. Flip there with me. You'll see this also. A lot of the things that we're going to cover tonight are actually the solid rock verses on our handout. So that'll be very helpful as well if you hold that in hand. But Exodus chapter 3, this is the burning bush, by the way. Moses just doing his farmer thing, uh, tending the flock as a good shepherd would. All of a sudden he sees a bush that's not getting uh, burned up. He thinks, what in the world? He has to take his sandals off because God starts to speak through the angel of the Lord right then and there. He tells them, listen, go save my people from Pharaoh. I will do this. Moses says, what? (laughs) God says it again, go save my people. Well, what should I do? Well, you should do this. Well, who should I say sent me? Because they're going to make fun of me. They're not going to believe me. What do you mean, God of your fathers? What should I say your name is? This is verse 14. Verse 13, maybe for context, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, in the rest of scripture, we don't get the I am's that I am's, right? Or the I will be's what I will be's, or however else you want to parse it. We get capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. All right, this happens all the time in the Old Testament, and we really miss it in the New Testament because in the Greek, they didn't use Yahweh, they just used Lord. Just capital L and then O-R-D. And so a lot of times there can be a little bit of confusion when we're reading scripture because we'll just read by it and we'll think in the, you know, the Lord said to my Lord, you know, and we're wondering, why did it say it like that? But what's really happening is God's personal name is being invoked. Yahweh in the Hebrew. Yahweh said to my Lord. 
come and sit, and I'll make your enemies a footstool. That's a psalm, a messianic psalm, 110. But that, that reality, that, that moment where uh, you begin to realize that this capital L-O-R-D, all caps, is actually a different word. It's signifying the personal name of God. It changes the way we read scripture, and it should, because now we're invoking the personal name, Yahweh, Jehovah, as as an English uh, kind of transliteration uh, where we add vowels to the Hebrew letters, uh, Jehovah, Yahweh. That's kind of the same same word there, and so a lot of times in the King James, you'll see Jehovah, Uh, but, but a lot of times in our new translations, we'll miss it, and we shouldn't. Because when you see the I am being mentioned, well, where else in scripture have we seen this? Oh, oh yeah, Jesus himself says, I am the great I am. Uh, he uses I am statements in, in John. They say, who are you? He says, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. He starts to say these things and we begin to realize that as Jews, uh, uh, hearing Jesus say this, they would be reading this script and seeing the personal name of God, even though they wouldn't say it. Uh, that would just, uh, that's a cultural thing. They uh, were nervous to take the Lord's name in vain, uh, were perhaps being a little too cautious uh, and lost the personal name. And, and so the first thing that we need to see as we go into the book of Exodus, uh, and, and, the, and this is important because it has, it has uh, fingers that, that come out from here into all the rest of the Old Testament, and it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, Jehovah, the personal name of God. God is, is no longer uh, uh, some uh, universal being outside of existence, unwilling to reveal himself to his people. No, this is monumental because eternity itself, God, infinite, and all of these things, goodness, mercy, justice, all of these things, boom, he gives you a personal name and he's sitting right beside you. Yahweh. Uh, this, is, this is incredible. Uh, in the truest of the sense, uh, we shouldn't pass over it lightly, but we sometimes do. God just gave us his name, Yahweh. It's important for Exodus. And, and we won't cover it. You know, for instance, when I read in Exodus, if, we were, if I were to be preaching or something like that, I wouldn't say, you know, Yahweh said to me, because sometimes that would confuse the readers, if they haven't been sitting in the Wednesday night lesson on Exodus, for instance, it may be a hindrance to their reading of God's word. But, but as you learn this and as you begin to see this in your scriptures, as you open it up and you read in the Psalms and in Exodus maybe, as you study this more, pay attention because they, it comes up in, in wonderful ways and in powerful moments. Yahweh came. Yahweh descended. Yahweh preserved. When you begin to see that the I am uh, that, that he is doing these things. You begin to connect it with Jesus in a way that, that you kind of knew it was always there, right? Yeah, Jesus, he's God. Uh, you know, he, he came as a human here and he was a baby, but he was kind of in the Old Testament. No, he is Yahweh. He is I am. It's very important. has far-reaching uh, um, purposes in Scripture. So we see that in, in Exodus 3. Very important. Uh, a, a huge and pivotal moment for God's people. Now, after Exodus 3, uh, he says, well, Yahweh told me to send you. You tell them that. Go. And so he does. Uh, there's a little bit more to the story, but he gets to, to Pharaoh's courtroom and he says, listen, let my people go. And of course, Moses said, okay. 
No, he didn't say that. Well, he did kind of, but, but it, it didn't work out that way. You should know this because most everyone, including non-believers, are familiar with the Ten Commandments. I mean, uh, well, they're there too, the, the Ten Plagues. You know, the uh, Pharaoh decides, I'm not going to let these people go. They're too valuable. They want to go with all their stuff and, and worship their God. I'm not going to let them go. So the plagues ensue. Why? What, what's the deal with the plagues? This is just for your reference. Chapters 7 through 14, you'll find the 10 plagues. Um, you, we could list them if we wanted. You know, water turned to blood. You see them, I think, in the, I think they have them in the summary heads of the Bibles that we use. Frogs, gnats, flies, livestock dying, boils, hail. All of these things are happening. Well, what's going on, though? I mean... Is this just trying to convince a, a petty ruler to let people go? Well, there's a little bit more going on. It's worth mentioning as we read Exodus because it takes such a large portion. If we were to split Exodus into two parts, one would be the Exodus. It's a very important part of Exodus. The next part would be, would, would be one that we're not so familiar with, which is the, the building of the tabernacle, the revelation of God's law, the revelation of the ceremonial rituals that would reveal Jesus Christ. Uh, and all, and then kind of in a culmination of all of these things, God descending. We'll get there at the end. But, but we're in this kind of big chunk right now, the Exodus. That's what the book's named after, the Exodus. Uh, so what in the world's happening? Why does, it have to be, why does it have to be the ten plagues? Well, uh, the reason is many. One, pay, uh, you know, pagan rulers didn't really like it when another god is challenging them. Uh, for one, their gods are, are called into question. The powers of their gods. Uh, you know, more than that, Pharaoh was considered a deity. To go against Pharaoh was to go against God. Little G maybe for us, but big G for them. Uh, and so all of a sudden, you have these slaves coming, and you have one of your own, Moses, because by the way, he was adopted by the court uh, 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 a princess uh, in the Egyptian court. And, and so you have this guy coming who, who's able to have a presence by the providence of the Lord. He says, listen, let my people go. You're flying in the face of the institution. They're pagans. And, and in the ten plagues, you see interesting things uh, that you wouldn't maybe necessarily see. And we're not going to dive into all of them. But for instance, we'll just... Uh, we'll just do the first one, water turned to blood. You know, the Nile was a very important uh, religious and economic and, uh, and everything else you can think of, commodity for the Egyptians. The Nile was existence. And here you see Moses by the hand of God showing that he has con complete control over the Nile. Likewise, you see these other things as well. You know, the kind of they kind of continue on in this, this natural way. Uh, but don't think they're only natural. The Lord's working supernaturally. You see that in the hail particularly, also the darkness and things like that. But, you know, all of these things would have had its own deity in, in the pagan kind of occult. They would have had all of these different deities over these certain things. And all of a sudden, God is just, to put it bluntly and maybe a little crassly, spitting upon those images of those deities. He is capital G God, and he's asserting power unlike any power these Egyptians have ever seen before. 
It harkens back to what God said to Abraham, that, that not only would he deliver his people, but it would be in power, and it would be with great possession. Uh, he was showing that he was the true God and is the true God and will continue to be the true God. There is no other like him. In these plagues, you see a total domination. It can make us feel uncomfortable, uh, but, but it, it, it should because, because it is God bearing his full weight of power and deity upon a nation and upon a person, Pharaoh, an unbeliever who had hardened his heart. Now, that was sort of a reason. There's a lot there, so you'd have to dig into it maybe a little bit more with study Bibles and articles and things like that. But it culminates. It culminates in the Passover. That's the 10th plague. Uh, Y'all know about the Passover, right? Uh, You put a little blood on your door, slaughter a lamb, put a little little blood on, and the, the angel of death passes over your house. Your firstborn won't die. But if you refuse to believe that statement, say, listen, Every one of y'all, you need to slaughter a lamb when you get home, put some blood on your door, you'll be fine. And you say, you are crazy. There's no way that's going to happen. Uh, if you were in that, in that stance, well, your firstborn would die. That's what God said. That's what Moses told Pharaoh. Uh, this is, by the way, we're coming into chapter, end of chapter 12, into, into chapter 13. Uh, it's kind of all built into this. And so we see here a culmination in the Passover and a revelation of God's power. You know, Pharaoh, the deity, the most powerful uh, uh, man in existence at the time, all of a sudden uh, is put into a serious state of weakness. And the weakness was because of his own misbelief, or his own unbelief, rather. You know, his, his unbelief, his his. He was unwilling to even consider that his firstborn would die if he didn't listen to Moses, the man of God, the prophet, revealing to him that which would happen, that he didn't, he just plugged his ears. He hardened his heart, to use scripture's terminology. And in that moment, he was laid low to the fullest of of extents for, for a pharaoh, particularly kind of the ruler, if you think about it this way, his son died, his heir. Not only that, his child Total domination of the real deity of God, capital G, to God, lowercase g. The plagues are are culminating in, in this reality that God is God. But not only does it culminate, because after it culminates, Pharaoh says, get out. Just get out. His son's dead. He says, get out. All of the Egyptians' children are dead at this point, and they're saying, just go. They have been laid low. Just go. And, and more than that, the Jews said, by the way, as we're leaving, God said that we could take anything we wanted. And the Egyptians said, take it. Just go. Just go. And so they do. They leave with great spoil, just as God had prophesied. And as they continue to go, well, they get farther and farther away. And Pharaoh begins to think more and more and more. And condemnation ensues. You know, Pharaoh said go. And they did. But Pharaoh chased them. And so we see a culmination, a a, a laying low, a a reality of God proving himself to be God, proving those that claim to be God uh, just just wasted. And now Pharaoh still, with his worldly might, seeks to overtake the Israelites. Now this is coming up to the Red Sea. 
if you recall. So we've passed the Passover. They consecrate their firstborn. God begins to reveal himself in pillars of, uh, by pillars of cloud and fire by night. And all of a sudden, they're standing at the Red Sea. And the vast armies, the military of Egypt is behind them. And they have nowhere to go. And so, uh, not to uh, 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 go too slow here, Moses parts the Red Sea, the story that most of us are familiar with. They begin to go through. They make it to the other side. Pharaoh and his armies don't. So they had been laid low. They had been proven that, uh, that they are not deity. And yet in his worldly might, he still sought to, to, uh, to kill uh, Israel, to kill God's people, to show who was the most powerful. And in that, they were condemned and swept away by the floods of the Red Sea. As the waters crashed down upon them, God's blessing was not there. Only God's righteous justice. There was a, a condemnation at the end. And we see that in the Red Sea. Moses, of course, singing about it at the end. And we'll just sing the first couple lines, but it's a powerful song. Uh, very important, I think, to the book of Exodus, just in seeing Moses' frame of mind and who's in control. Moses, this is verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. You see, when you read it with the personal name, after he had revealed it, after all those ten plagues happened, after those fake deities had been laid low, after God had revealed himself as the most powerful, and Moses sings and he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh is his name. God. It carries with it a certain weight that we might have missed in those stories that we are so familiar with. So we see the plagues. We see the parting of the Red Sea. Now they're into the wilderness. What comes next? Well, we flip to Exodus 20. There's some stuff in between, like manna, uh, things like that, bread coming from heaven. But we won't cover that. I'll allow you to study that on your own. We come to the Ten Commandments. Uh, again, this is another uh, uh, vastly important piece of Scripture. Because here, in chapter 20... Here in chapter 20, God reveals in summary fashion the entirety of the moral law. Now, uh, the moral law, I just used that word. Some of you might not know what that is. The moral law is, is that law that God reveals to us that affects our everyday lives, our ethics, how we live, how we should live, what we shouldn't do, why we shouldn't do that, why we should do the things we should do. The moral law, how we live. Well, we see it all in the Ten Commandments. You can base your entire life off of the Ten Commandments. You see it in Scripture. You see Jesus do it. You see the rest of the Old Testament do it. You see the rest of the New Testament do it. The Ten Commandments inform all of the ethics of the Bible. It is, to put it quite frankly, a revelation of God himself. Because God is giving us that which he is telling us to do. He is giving us uh, a, a mirror, as it were, into the ethics of himself. 
uh, how we should live our lives, the moral law. This is in Exodus 20. Now, the Ten Commandments, we could go through them. I could give you cutesy little things that I'm going to teach Mary Emmeline, my daughter, right? You know, don't have any other gods before me, and you wag your finger, and then you have the second one. And, you know, we could go through some fun things like that, but I'll let you read the Ten Commandments on your own. It's very important to read them. Uh, a lot of the reasons why we don't know how to live as Christians is because we don't know the Ten Commandments. <laughs> if you haven't memorized the Ten Commandments, how should you know how to live ethically? I can't say it any other way. Uh, it seems perhaps a little blunt, but uh, I, I don't want you to be offended. It's just if you have questions about the ethics of Christianity, look to the Ten Commandments. Look to what Jesus has to say about these Ten Commandments and how he reveals them to be even more than we could have ever thought uh, they were. They are the summation of the moral law. But we need to read them in context. It's very important that we read them in context because if we don't, uh, we may think that if we do these things, God will bless us. Yeah, okay, I have the Ten Commandments. It's how God has revealed himself, his will to, to mankind, to humanity. If I live like this, God will bless me. Well, how so? He won't bless you with salvation because we always fail when we try to do the Ten Commandments, when we try to live by these things. Uh, no, we need to see the Ten Commandments in context. And this is chapter 20, verse 1. Chapter 20, verse 1 says this, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is how the Ten Commandments start. This is how our, our, uh, our doctrine starts. Being saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in the I am alone, if I were to say it like that, uh, in Jesus alone. All to God's glory. And it's all done in, in, this, in this reality that it is God who, who, is, who is working first. Let me read it again because it's that important. Verses 1 and 2. God spoke all these words saying, God is saying something first. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, what he's saying is this. I have done something for you. I have saved you. <laughs> I've delivered you. You are saved by me now. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Verse 7, you shall not make, take the name of the Lord. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath, and on and on. These, this law, this moral law, plays itself out for God's people in a way that, that, that shows God's will that reveals Christ, reveals God to others around us as we obey these things. But it does not save us because we cannot obey it perfectly. We just can't. Uh, we have been corrupted by our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-
you see this in, in chapters 25 through 31 and also 35 through 40. It's, it's this beginning of ceremonial revelation. What do I mean by that? Uh, the tabernacle, the temple, the vestments of the priest, the sacrificial system. Why do you kill lambs this way? Why do you kill goats this way? Why does Aaron have a, uh, a 12 rubies on his breastplate with chains connecting them all and one going up to his ear? Uh, why does he have the, the blood of a, of a bull uh, rubbed onto the left lobe of his, of his ear? Why? Why do you take the liver? and Why do you burn the liver? Why do you have the fat? What does the purple signify? Why the purple garments? What about the, the perfect dimensions of the Holy of Holies? What about the altar? What about the candles? What about the engravings? We could go on and on. Look at chapters 35 uh, through, or 25 through 31 and 35 through 40. It's the dimensions of the tabernacle, what will be the temple, uh, what will be for a very long time, almost 1,500 years, the primary means by which God reveals Jesus Christ to his people. It's the ceremonial revelation. It's revelation in this, in this moment of, uh, of uh, foreshadowing. And so when you see the purple, you see the kingly nature of God. When you see the priest's robe in purple. When you see uh, the bells as, you, as they tinkle on the high priest's robe, for instance, as they walk into the Holy of Holies, you wonder, why are those bells there? Because if he were to be struck dead by the holiness of God, you can't go in after him. You'll die too. You better drag him out with a rope. And you say, I'll be there with bells on? You better be careful what you say. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the ceremonial revelation, you see it starting in Exodus. You'll see it continue in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. Uh, and, and, and this revelation is revealing Jesus Christ, quite simply. Uh, it, it, all of these things point to Jesus. And now, you know, when you get into it, it's going to help you if you have different, you know, articles, maybe a study Bible, things like that, something that you can really kind of read along with some of these things if you're not familiar with some of the imagery, of the Old Testament, how it points to Christ. Uh, but it's there, the ceremonial revelation. Be aware of it. Don't skip over the, the dimensions of the tabernacle. They're revealing Jesus Christ. You're skipping over Jesus. Now to finish this up, in the book of Exodus, those are some important pieces, right? You've you got to know that God reveals himself personally, Yahweh. You've got to know that the Ten Commandments are there. You really kind of need to know God's judgment and the, and the ten plagues before that because, in all honesty, it reveals God for who he is. It reveals Yahweh as the real deal, to use kind of our common vernacular. This is, this is no fake. So you see that as well. Uh, and then lastly, you see the ceremonial revelation of the tabernacle. Huge pieces of scripture. And we come to this last part, and this is where we'll end. We see in the book of Exodus, we see this all in all the places of Scripture, but we see it kind of in a, in a starker light here. We see, we see the sinfulness of God's people, the holiness of God, and we see this gap. How in the world are we supposed to fix the gap? Exodus chapter 20, that's where the Ten Commandments are. God speaks them. 
after he speaks them, this is what God's people say. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. God just revealed the Ten Commandments and the people said, don't ever let them speak again. We'll die. They recognized their own sinfulness and they recognized God's holiness. Uh, God himself speaks in chapter 34. This is after the golden calf incident where God's people revealed their true colors of sinfulness and idolatry. And, and what was God going to do? He was going to blot them all out. And Moses says, please don't. He intercedes on our behalf just like Jesus Christ does. And what does God do? He says, okay. And then Moses says, please stay with us. Reveal yourself to me. Show me your face. God says, I can't do that, but I will pass by you and let you see my backside. This is verse 6 of chapter 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Here comes an important part that we sometimes forget when we quote this. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation? How are we to be in the presence of God when he is, he is merciful, he is gracious, he is slow to anger, but he will not forgive our iniquity? What are we to do? Well, as we see in the sacrificial uh, system, as we see the tabernacle being erected, as we see uh, Moses interceding on our behalf, as we see God being God, not only uh, justly and righteously condemning Egypt, but also uh, uh, allowing his people to be delivered out of that same bondage and slavery. We see that it is God who is working. How do we fill the gap? God fills the gap. God is not only holy, God is also merciful. Where do we see that perfectly? We see it in Jesus. Because Jesus comes and he fulfills the law and he lives this perfect life, but he doesn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He takes on the form of sinful flesh, yet perfect, and he dies on the cross, thereby fulfilling God's justice, righteousness, and God's merciful graciousness at the very same time. And so God fills the gap. We see it beginning in a very clear way in Exodus. And as we march through, we'll see it more and more. Genesis gave us the problem. Genesis gave us a little bit of the answer. Exodus reveals it more and gives us the system. And now we march from there to see what God would have for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that we can see uh, uh, your wonderful goodness, but also your righteous justice. Lord, as we seek uh, someone to fill the gap, we cry out to you and thank you in the name of Jesus Christ who did it. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news. Help us to live by it as we see uh, the moral law uh, uh, properly and righteously extolled before us in the Ten Commandments. Help us to move forward in them, not to save ourselves, but because we have been saved by the merit of Jesus himself. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you gave us your name, Yahweh. I am, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>